Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting, as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I have been scrolling through my Facebook and looking at a lot of people saying lots of wonderful, wonderful things. But what I've seen is a, a serious lack of gig photos that I'm so accustomed to. Normally, I get to scroll through and just see pictures of symmetrical beams and different colors and different rock stars and and huge arenas. And nowadays, I just don't get a lot of that. So when I do see it, I jump on it and I want to talk about it because that's what we're good at. We're good about talking about gigs that we had a great time on and all the rare and exotic places that we've gone to. And I just haven't had a lot of chances to do that lately. So today's the day I'm going to jump all over that because I'm very excited to uh, invite two of my very good friends, uh, Zach Matisau, who is a lighting designer and director, and Matt Stovall, another lighting designer. Based, Both of them are based out of Los Angeles. And I am so thankful for both of them being able to post some gig photos on my timeline. And that makes me so happy. So let's kind of talk about this one a little bit. Matt, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and you are still lucky enough to have the luxury of getting on a plane, going somewhere outside of your house to hang lights and do a show. Uh, you got to be able to tell me about that. Cause I'm, I'm, uh, you can't see it, but I'm, I'm super jelly. Well, yeah, I, I've been lucky enough to work with Riot Games uh, for close to nine years now. And, uh, you know, when we started working with Riot Games, uh, it was, I mean, way back in uh, season two, uh, we just wrapped up season 10. And, you know, Riot uh, is owned by Tencent, the Chinese media conglomerate. And uh, uh, they were really, really, really motivated to make sure that they didn't have their entire season, uh, you know, take place in everyone's uh, bedrooms and living rooms and home offices. And uh, as, as such, they, you know, went through, you know, an incredible amount of effort and energy to uh, figure out how to get uh, 22 teams from uh, all over the globe into China uh, to hold their, their world finals. And their world finals is a huge, huge, huge event for them. Uh, you know, usually, surpasses you know something close to 100 million views uh internationally um so it's a big show for them it's a big deal they get a lot of eyeballs um and i think especially in the pandemic they knew that they were going to be one of the only big live events in the entire world and they were they were pretty stoked to see what they could do to pull this thing off so uh you know they they set out um on this quest and and it was sort of unlike anything that i've ever designed before we no site surveys uh you know big stadium show <laughs> yeah it's a uh, as, as you as you face bob i mean it was it was it was an endeavor um 
but you know riot has uh you know an office in china they worked with a local uh, uh company in china called kingway to help uh facilitate uh the production on on the on, uh, and all of the things that we would need to figure out on a site survey end in uh uh you know being being absent and then um their their local uh or domestic partner is a company called concom uh, which also does all of the UFC fights and, and Concom has worked with them for a couple of years and Concom is, is one of the few other production companies out there that's been doing uh, some work pretty consistently throughout the pandemic. Um, I think starting with Fight Island in, in Abu Dhabi or the Emirates, yeah, yeah. I don't remember where exactly they did it, but, you know, Concom uh, is, is, you know, qu very quickly got very experienced in how to execute a show uh, in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, Riot, had Concom have a great relationship and, and they all sort of riffed off one another and uh, that led us all to China. Even without a global virus killing a million people, that's the logistics of that are, are mind boggling to get 22 teams and an entire arena, multiple arena sized productions into China. That's uh, the logistics and the money involved is just staggering. Uh, that must've been a lot for you. I mean, normally you would have been flown over to China once, if not twice, for multiple site surveys and walkarounds and meetings, mm -hmm. and that all happened digitally. Now, everything was done digitally. Um, we assembled uh, a really uh, every department had assembled a really massive list of, of questions, and and they asked us to uh, put together you know photos of things that we look for specifically when we walk into a venue. Anything that, you know, basically we could hand off to somebody that basically knows nothing about a, a, a venue or a live event uh, with a list and basically say, okay, you don't know anything. Here's a bunch of photos of things I need you to look at, measurements I want you to take. Um, and on top of all of this, the venue that we did the show in was under construction almost the entire pandemic. So the venue, the first time I, I got out of quarantine, we got uh, we had a, a studio show that Zach uh, did a lot of help uh, a big ARXR show uh, between Riot and Possible and and that was sort of the the all of the the show that was the playoffs leading up to the finals and the and the finals was the stadium show, but we got the the studio show the the playoffs sort of installed and and in a place where Possible could work through teching all of the AR and XR. And then from there, we went to uh, the stadium to sort of do our very first uh, site survey walk through the stadium. And they were literally pouring the concrete for the, uh, the, the pitch of the, the, the soccer pitch of the stadium floor the day we were there. And that was the most assembled anybody had ever seen the entire stadium. The elevators didn't work in the building. The fire alarms were still being tested. Their, everything was covered in concrete dust and drywall dust. Uh, I mean, it was it was it was unbelievable. And, and backing up even further, you know, Riot was working with a group of international architects over the summer to say, hey, we think this building is even going to be ready for us in time. So as the show assembled there, we had to meet shipping deadlines uh, before we would know whether or not the stadium was going to be uh, something that we could actually do a show in. So, Oh, my God, because even the building being ready, there's getting everything to the buildings built multiple locations. Yeah. Uh, transportation has come to a, a near halt in China. Yeah. There's, there's not a lot of, I mean, everything to get from one place to another requires multiple passes, multiple clearances. I mean, international travel is not 
exactly encouraged these days. No. So, uh, you know, we were there because Riot is, is owned by Tencent and Tencent's, you know, a Chinese media company, you know, that that was the ticket in, right? It, it, China really wanted to do the show. Tencent really wanted to do the show. Um, you know, the, the Shanghai wants to become the esports capital of the world. So so all of those things worked in our favor. And, and it was, you know, we've had successful shows in China in the past and, and you know, good working relationships with a lot of uh, different companies and crews and people all over China. And that was that was the ticket in without without all those individuals, you know, advocating at every level of the government to get us over there. It never would have happened. OK, so you were aware of this project before Zach. You decided to bring Zach in. Zach, what was that phone call like? How did that phone call go? <laughs> um, well, it was, um, it was, I mean, to be honest, it was like everything else that I had gotten calls about in the pandemic, which was sort of like, I don't even know if this is going to happen. This might be an opportunity. Do we, you know, is something, you know, uh, near like a penciling in on my calendar um, or, or, or a, a firm, you know, Sharpie concrete, you know, etching in my calendar. It was, I wasn't sure if it was going to happen or not going to happen, but you know, I've been friends with Matt for years. We've worked together for years. And I sort of said to him, look, you know, like I'll, I'll hold hand with you in the apocalypse, you know, let's do it. Let's do it. If you're going, I'm going. There was still a lot of, you know, unknowns as far as, um, like Matt said, we all compiled a massive list of questions to, to discuss with the, you know, the various clients that we were with. And I, I knew that would all get kind of sussed out. And I did trust that the client would, you know, has our, our health and safety in their best interest. You know, I knew that uh, the, the worst thing that could happen is any one of us getting sick over there and it being, um, you know, it being a risk or it being uh, it, it tainting the reputation of this of the show, because um, mm -hmm. we knew the eyes of the world were really watching. Um, you know, if this was an attempt to pull off a big show and instead it turned into a massive outbreak of COVID and a bunch of American citizens in China in the political climate that's happening right now is just nobody wants that to happen. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah, that would that would be kind of a blight, wouldn't it? It would have, yeah, it would have been. I think we would have been on the newspaper somewhere, probably. But uh, but no, it, it, everything as the days grew closer, everything kind of hashed itself out, and uh, a lot of our our you know um, curiosities were answered and and addressed, um, and uh, and yeah, it turned into an actual gig that happened, <laughs> as opposed to every other. Uh, phone call I get, which is usually a gig that gets canceled. After yeah, you. all every single phone call comes with a an unspoken disclaimer these days, saying, "I got this thing. I'm a hundred percent sure it's going to happen, but I'm not. You know, it could. You know, today I'm a hundred percent certain it's going to happen. Let's talk tomorrow. You know, it's there's so many uncertainties these days. So Matt, did you have your Chinese visa? prior to this so china actually revoked everyone's visa uh when the pandemic set in so right. i had your business class visa but it didn't matter and um you know when word got out on the street that i was trying to staff up a, a show a pretty big show with a pretty big team in china in the middle of all of this i got phone calls from people that i hadn't heard from in years that were you know hey man i got i have a chinese visa if if i can come uh you know if there's a spot for me i'd love to come and and it was uh, it was it was a little heartbreaking to have to, you know, talk to some of those people that I, I care for dearly, even if I haven't you know seen them enough. And, and and oh my gosh, I I wish I could take you, but I have to get everybody a new visa. I only get so many slots. Um, 
you know, the, even though the government wanted this to happen, we, we were only the company, the production as a whole was only allowed to bring in so many people. And, it, and the process was a little unclear. And, and there was never a moment where somebody said to me, Matt, you only get, uh, you know, X number of visa slots. But there was a, a moment where they said, no, OK, like, I don't think we can you have, you know, we had a, we had a front of house system tech that we wanted to bring. And, and it was one of those, OK, like, is this person going to be able to come? And I was like, I don't know, like, same conversation. I got a gig. I think it's happening. I don't know if I can get you out there. And, you know, two or three weeks later, it was like, nope, sorry, we're not going to be able to get this person out there or that person out there. So when when staffing this, I sort of had to dig deep and into my, you know, pool of friends and colleagues and, and trust that the people that I were bringing out were, were very capable of doing double duty because to Zach's point, you know, we, nobody really knew what was going to happen if somebody got sick and nobody knew what the consequences of, of anything were going to be. So I want, you know, Zach could program, Zach could call spots, Zach could be a lighting designer, he can talk to a client, like, you know, he could fill a lot of, of, of uh, shoes if I if I needed him to. And, and I think that was pretty true of, of just about everybody on my team. Everybody was there to, to do, you know, multiple jobs and, and, and had to, and we all had to work real hard and real closely together to make this happen. It's so, it must've been so tough because I would imagine in your logistical brain you're like well i need to bring some backup people but in the in the production world in the in the realist world they're like no you need to bring as few people as possible yep yep um i was actually supposed to when i flew out i flew out on august 26 and i at the time i was supposed to fly with one other uh teammate but that teammate got really really cold feet at the 11th hour and we couldn't replace his body uh, on the headcount list on that flight. United had locked all of the flights. Um, there was no, you know, that, that was it. So when I flew out there, it was, it was me, myself, and I. And, uh, you know, our production designer, Joe Kale, um, didn't get on the first flight. His art director, Danielle, came. Um, you know, it was, it was a real lean group of people that flew out there on the first flight. And um, by the time Zach and, and Shaheem uh, joined me, uh, Shaheem Lickmore was, was worked with Zach. Uh, pretty closely throughout this process um i you know i i had already done like sort of the first programming pass of the of the arxr show because i was the only person there to do it and and uh uh creative technologies uh provided me with a, a really nice really competent um you know chinese uh, local that spoke english that was my production electrician slash you know he, he programmed clearly like i think he, he was working he was always on in WYSIWYG on a corner working on some project local to, in China, but they were like, Hey, do you guys, do you need this guy to program for you? And I was like, ah, no, like, I don't want to get too deep into it with him because I have Zach and Jaheim coming out and, and they're the people that are going to be doing the deep dive on this. But it was, it was a strange process to get out there and get the show on its feet for the first time. And um, even within that, um, you know, there was a lot of concern about, um, how much time it was going to take the XR to get online and how much time they were going to have to tech it. So we thought we were going to be coming out of quarantine, going straight into a load in. And uh, instead they, they pushed load in about a day early. And I was getting, you know, photos from Sam Tibble at, at creative technologies that were like, Hey, here's all of your lights that are like hanging in the air. And I was like, yep. Okay. That's, that's pretty close to the light plot that I drew. Like, what about you know it was it was a big sky panel rig and, and sky panels are not easy to come by in, in china and i was like well what about like this accessory or that accessory and he was like oh yeah we couldn't find any of those so you know we just we just hung it like this that's pretty close right and i was like yeah i guess yep 
that if it is like we know we can make it work so it'll be fine that's the only that's the only choice we have at this point okay, so. let me let me paint this picture and you tell me if i'm accurate you are locked in a hotel room by order of the chinese government while your rig is being translated by a team that you've never met I would met them once before. I we were worked with them a couple years ago in Korea. So I, I was Okay. Sam the 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 creative technologies uh project manager is a British expat and he has been with creative technologies in, in Shanghai for a long time. So I at least knew him and I knew a couple guys on his team, but I'd never met the production electrician. I'd never even had an email with the production electrician. It was very much a one-way uh conversation. It was okay, like let me send you a light plot and an equipment list. And, and they would be like, yeah, yeah, we think we can make that work. But I mean, I didn't know, even up until the day we were loading in, they were like, they were like, hey, so um, we can't find any more SkyPanel S360s in China. Do you really need more S360s? And I was like, yeah, I really need like, like six more. And they were like, okay, we'll find them. And lo and behold, you know, a week later, six brand new S60s in cardboard showed up. Like that was, that was our load. <laughs> How frustrating. Uh, us all being designers, we all know how important that last second touch is. The, like, no, that needs to move over two inches. That needs a top hat. That needs a barn door. And if you don't get it now, it's going to cost us five hours later to get it up there when I show you why we need that barn door. Yeah. Well, not and only that. locked in a hotel room for those, for those uh, crucial moments. Yeah. It, it's... You know, labor is very inexpensive there, and they're yeah. really good guys. They're really skilled. They're really, really good workers. Um, I, you know, we spent a lot of hours with guys up climbing around the rig and up on scaffolding, <laughs> getting through a lot of that. And and we made, um, they have they have something out there. I think it was called KT board, but it was basically foam core. And uh -huh. the amount of hours those guys spent attaching like foam core, like bottomers, <laughs> like sky panels and duvetine borders and, you know, stuff up in the air. And it was all stuff that I was like, man, if we could have done this on the ground, I, you know, we could have done this in a couple hours. And instead it was, you know, like a couple days of them up in the rig and, and it worked out. Okay. There was a lot, there was so much to tech on the, on the, uh, with the XR that, and the XR guys didn't care that we were up in the rig while we were doing it. We were just like, they were trying to get camera tracking data and, and, and all of that stuff working. And, and so we could do what we needed to do, but it was, uh, it was intense. <laughs> it was, it was something else. So. That is amazing. There's so much to be said for the ingenuity for the, and the creativity uh, on the way that they do things in China. There's like, I never would have thought of that. There's, the ways that I would have done that are very different and they would have been much more expedient, but that's, that's artistry up there. Whatever it is you're doing. <laughs> I, think it was fun. I mean, I like a good challenge. Like that was maybe 10% like more challenge than I wish I had to deal with, but, <laughs> but, it was, but it was okay. Right. That's a small complaint in, in 2020. So it, it cool. Didn't look, it didn't look super elegant from the naked eye. Glad good thing it wasn't on camera ever. Cause it was, yeah, it 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 looked funky. It was not what you thought it would be. <laughs> All right, so while you're over there, Zach, you're still in LA. When did you fly? Because uh, Matt flew in August. You flew. I flew first week in September. Okay, so what and... was that process like? What was it? I mean, it was, clearly it was the first time you'd been on a plane in months. Yeah, yeah. How did it that was, process go? It was. Uh... It was it was really scary to be honest. It was actually scary. <clears throat> it felt uh, I felt butterflies in a way I haven't felt since I 
it, the first time I went on a plane, I think um, it reminded me of the first time when I was in college going to live in another country um, or maybe my first time stepping on a plane to tour, like the first time that somebody paid me and gave me a seat on a plane to go somewhere. Um, you know, the butterflies in your stomach, just being nervous, you know, the kind of you know, to, to fly that day. I remember like I actually had a binder of printouts of information of just things I might need at some point in the travel day, like we used to do before smartphones and before, um, you know, 9-11, I guess, or I don't know, it just, uh, it was a totally different experience and um, just so many last minute to-do lists and notes for myself on things I needed to remember. We had a mandatory COVID test um, before we flew within five days as mandated by the Chinese government. There was a lot of last minute visa, um, like notarization style documents we needed to submit to the embassy. Um, and, and if any one of those wasn't in line, we were at risk of not being allowed into the country um, or worse yet, you know, us, our documentation not being in, in order and us getting ushered off to a, a different type of government quarantine uh, versus the one that we were at, which was kind of like a, you know, a hotel sort of stay kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, the whole travel day was, it was, uh, it was just a little, just, nerve-wracking to like have to pack all the different PPE equipment and face shields and and wipes and you know I hadn't been to an airport I hadn't been to anything um, that vulnerable as far as like a, a, like a gathering of people um, since the pandemic started so there was those nerves to kind of contend with and um, yeah the, the flight itself was okay I mean it wasn't too crowded as you would expect mm -hmm. so that was nice um, and our, our flight actually met, we can maybe speak to this, but our, at the time we were flying United and we weren't allowed to, um, uh, I think it was American flight attendants weren't allowed to go into mainland China because the moment you touch down there, you automatically have to go to a two week quarantine. And I guess we had to change flight crew in Seoul because in order to go around that, you know, that, that, that mandate. Um, so we had additional stops on the long flight to China. Um, so I don't know, the normally 24 hour travel day turned into a 28, eight hour travel day or whatever. And uh, yeah, yeah. It, other than that, it was, it was just, you know, uh, once we were on the flight and you were up in the air watching movies and stuff, it felt, felt kind of normal. Once we landed, uh, it was a little rough. Uh, I'd say we, we got, we would go straight into a, like a government, uh, they had set up some mobile trailers like out on the tarmac and uh, we went straight into a deep nasal, nasal swab COVID test. Um, which was by far the most painful that I've experienced in the pandemic. And maybe one of the more painful things I've ever experienced. <laughs> they um, stick it up there. They, it goes, they, they stick it up there. Yeah. They well, re re rewind those act. Like, so the first thing that happened when we got off the plane was we were greeted by everybody, everybody at the airport that was staff at the airport was wearing full, uh, uh, full Tyvek suits, face masks, gloves, uh, the whole bodysuit, the mask. And, and when I got off the plane, I mean, it was, I mean, Zach, it was still hot when Zach got off the plane, but you know, it's the end of August. So it's Shanghai. It's 90 degrees out. It's 90% humidity. We're sweating just standing there in our, in our, in our travel clothes. And all these people that greet us are, are just covered head to toe. And you can see them like sweating through the plastic on their suits. Full outbreak style. Yeah. It was like, it was like ET, right? It was like, it was it was getting off the plane and everybody that greeted you was was you you looked like you like you had the plague i mean it was it was smart i, I mean i don't having gone through it i i totally understand why they did it and i have no 
I've, I, I only have the utmost respect for the people that are working at the airport in Shanghai or in Beijing or anywhere in the world that's allowing people in right now because right. they're it's it's scary for them. So I need to take a moment to just kind of embrace the fact and kind of speak about the fact that in a movie, you guys would be like leading scientists flying into China, or you would be like a, a paramedic or part of the military, or you'd have like a, a, br a briefcase with a handcuff <laughs> carrying top secret information. And I can only imagine people outside going like, who are those guys? Who are these Americans coming into China in the middle of a pandemic? They're clearly uh, some top secret men in black or something. And for you to be like, uh, I'm a lighting programmer. Yeah. You're a what? Look like production guys. <laughs> like, what do you, clearly that's a front. Like you're, you're a lighting designer for like a, for video games. Like, I don't know if you talked to anybody else on the plane, but I, I talked to a couple other people on the plane and the plane was about, I would say about a third Americans traveling for work. Um, the, the one guy I talked to in particular was traveling. He worked, he worked for Nike uh, corporate Shanghai and he had his entire family with him. And he had a, uh, was an, was an American with a wife and two young children. And he said Nike had evacuated them in the middle, uh, like when the big pandemic started and told them do not uh, you know, do not stop at your apartment. Do not collect $200. Like come straight to the airplane. We're getting you out of the country right now. Cause we don't know what's going on. So he said in preparation for coming back into the country, he called up his neighbor and his neighbor had to, uh, you know, came into his apartment and got the maid to come in and clean. And he had milk in his fridge that had nobody had touched in six months because that that's how quickly they left their apartment. So that was, they were all pretty excited to come back. They wanted, you know, China was his kid's home. They'd never been anywhere uh, outside of China, uh, you know, as, 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 you know, growing, you know, young adults. Um, and then the other part of the plane was Chinese nationals that were coming home that were finally getting tickets back into the country. And, and they were, everybody was pretty chill, but there was a lot of people on the plane that were also wearing full PPE, you know, suits, gloves, uh, masks, face shields that were also just, you know, they were just clearly like, paranoid about getting on an airplane because that and that to Zach's point that was the hardest part was getting on that airplane you, you know none of us really knew that was that's that was the risky moment for all of us right that was we felt pretty good once we got into quarantine we felt pretty good like kind of leading up to there but our, I think our, our uh, stomachs were in our throats a bit for for that flight across the board everyone we talked to along the way like as I was waiting to deplane in Shanghai I got talking with one of the flight attendants and she was asking those questions. She's like, who, who, who are you guys? Or why are you flying? And, uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, lighting and video games. And, uh, but the, the flight attendant I was speaking to said that she was out of work for the previous six months. And that was her very first flight um, back working again. Um, so it, it definitely had that aura of, of privilege um, to, to be doing something like that. You know, almost like I'm sure in, in your travels, Chris, you know, g gone to, um, you know, a country to do a gig or something where at the moment you land, they put you in the, the diplomats line in the visa mm -hmm. processing or in the immigration. Um, it felt a little bit like that. Like we are definitely part of an envoy and uh, this isn't normal type of travel. I have mixed feelings about that. In one regard, I, I totally respect the privilege that we have to be doing stuff like that. But inside there's this core little voice going like, you're an imposter. They have you like you. You don't you don't deserve this. What are you doing? You're just you're a theater nerd. <laughs> you know what are you doing in this line? Why are you getting these special privileges? Like don't they know that you're? Don't they know that you're just a a, a computer programmer nerdy guy that <laughs> yeah. doesn't belong there? 
Yeah, but and we didn't and I go any, back and forth. We didn't have any police escorts, to the best of my knowledge. It, was, it didn't go that far. You know, that's always at the, least none that you knew about. Yeah, that, well, yeah, none that we saw. I mean, once we got, you know, we we did we you got to the airport. They did a health screening. You got a, a nasal test. You went through customs. Uh, customs was pretty normal. Um, when you we got through, every bag on the airplane had already been dumped out onto two carousels, and there were still bags that were were waiting to get dumped onto the carousel. And so it took forever to get through baggage claim. Uh, but that was was also pretty normal. And then from there, they took us as a group um, to uh, basically a court, uh, like a sequestered us in a corner. And then there was a and then put us on a bus to take us to the quarantine hotel. Okay. And there was nowhere you could run at that point, though. You couldn't tell who <laughs> security and who was a doctor and who was a nurse. Right. Everybody just had Tyvek on and, and they just it was it was it was dudes in spacesuits. So, oh, man so vulnerable so vulnerable. Um, also, the moment that you exit uh after we got through all of the <clears throat> the various qr code passes the uh our checkpoints the baggage claim the immigration the health check all that kind of stuff when you get to that section of the airport where you're walking out the sliding glass doors to the taxi pickup area it was nothing but a queue of buses and government workers just like filing people in it almost like a bus depot, just like and send and send and send. Okay, that was how you exit the airport. Go to two weeks of quarantine. Just okay. So let uh, you're gonna have to walk me through this one, Zach. You go from like hustle bustle. The you know your stomach is in your throat. Uh, you're flying. You're going through all this stuff. Everything's super hectic. You get to the the hotel just to be stuck in a room for two weeks with yourself and hopefully a Wi-Fi password. <laughs> yeah, 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 that and 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 uh, a couple other uh, creature comforts as well. What did uh, you bring? <clears throat> uh, brought as much as I possibly could. Uh, again, th this is the first time in ten years of of professional touring that I actually bought a luggage scale, um, and I actually weighed my bags down to the pound um, and brought as much as I could. Uh, and and in hindsight, I didn't bring enough. I would say. Um, you know, Matt had a, had about a week ahead of us, and we did have some um, some other people who we were in contact with months, you know, a month or two before who had gone through their own quarantine. So, give some recommendations. Um, you know, brought a lot of like you know protein heavy snacks like uh, peanut butter, granola bars. Um, I brought some loose leaf tea. Uh, of course, I, I flew into China with you know bulk tea, but uh, <laughs> I wasn't sure what I was going to get there, so uh, I just need you know needed that to have some routine. Uh, a lot of protein bars, um, some nuts, um, hot sauce, spices, things like that. All right. Um, you know, I brought some like a Nintendo. I brought an Apple TV with a travel router so I could uh, put a VPN on the router and just have mm -hmm. room Wi-Fi. Um, some books, uh, yoga mat. That was, nice. that was crucial. Cool. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't go through clothes, very many clothes. You know, you walked <laughs> in a room and... Uh, I think Sweat I got pants and a shirt. One pair of underwear, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was pretty much sweat the same pair of sweatpants for for two weeks, pretty much. <laughs> All right, Matt. So you had you went through it before before Zach did. What was the food situation? How how does food arrive at your hotel room? Uh, so three times a day, someone would knock on your door, and. Uh, the outside your door there was a coffee table and you would get a, a plastic like grocery bag that was tied shut 
and inside there would be whatever you were eating then. Um, breakfast every day without pause was red beans, some overcooked egg, some mushrooms, some tomato, some like really bad pastries, like a, like a piece of white bread and a, and a croissant, some really bad coffee and some really bad orange juice. Um, lunch without fail was uh, uh, like a pasta and like a, like a hot dog looking thing and some <laughs> boiled vegetables. And dinner without fail was some sort of uh, like bony fish and a vegetable and like an alternate protein. And some days it was like mystery meatloaf and some days it was chicken thighs. And it was, it was, uh, I, I will say the one thing that I did bring ahead of everybody else was I, I did pack hot sauce. I was, I was concerned about, Clever. Um, I was concerned about that going into it. And I have a, a good friend in the UK named John Dole who always travels with uh, mustard and hot sauce. And I, I, you know, took a page from his book and I was like, I'm just going to do this just so I have it. Yep. And I, I yep. Every, every drop of hot sauce that I had, I went through. And I was also really glad that I got to do it before the rest of my team did, because I kept sort of a slack travel blog for them. And I had notes about, you know, even going through SFO, SFO had nothing open at it. The duty free was closed. The money exchange was closed. The coffee shops were closed. I mean, there was nothing at, at anywhere. So I could at least warn everybody what to expect. Uh, you know, I said, bring hot sauce, bring, peanut butter, bring paper towels, bring, uh, you know, anything that you want, you know, everybody, I think just about everybody on our team flew with, you know, a, a, a bottle of wish of whiskey so that we had something to nurse at, you know, five o'clock and in, in, yeah. in our quarantine yeah. hotel room. Um, you can make any meal tolerable with some hot sauce and whiskey. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. So you guys were at least uh, semi-prepared. You, like you guys knew what you were in for. We're no strangers to spending a night or two or three in a hotel room, but but it was a, a full 14 days whether you were tested positive or negative, correct? Yep, yep, yep. And we never actually got the results of our test other than that nobody was ever told they needed to leave the hotel. And when we were coming in on the landing, they said that if someone <laughs> within, I think, three rows of us on the plane tested positive, we would also get sequestered. And okay. so- you know, nobody that I know of got sequestered. So I think we all came in, came through. Okay. <laughs> That's very Chinese. They're like, you'll know if you tested positive, you'll never know if you tested negative. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a good tactic there. Yeah. <laughs> so Zach, all of the stuff was already being built by the time you got there and you had to sit there for two weeks while everything's were being built. I would imagine you were getting constant updates as to what you could expect when you got out of quarantine? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, like jumping back to what Matt was sort of saying about how this this project was kind of staffed. I mean, I, in my view, it was, it was Matt was sort of assembling the team kind of like, um, you know, an NFL coach, you know, picks his players where you have, or, or, or a baseball coach or something where you have, you know, your pitchers and you have your position players, but you have, you know, some oh shit players that can kind of tag in as sort of needed. Um, like, oh, we've run out of pitchers, but we have this first baseman who could also throw the ball pretty well or something. Um, and I knew, you know, with this project and, and my skill set, and I think Matt had me out there as um, kind of like a utility player who could could do a lot of different things. And at the time, at, the, at that very time, I think I was expecting that I was going to move um, into the CT shop and kind of participate in the prep and the, um, you know, the ring out of, of, of the big stadium show. Um, but as it turned out, one of our other colleagues, Jeff Knight, um, had an issue with his visa and missed his flight out. 
So his time on site was delayed by two and a half weeks or three weeks or something. Um, oh, wow. So we kind of shifted around and, and then my focus kind of jumped into more um, the studio show that Matt was saying was was hung with with tie line and duvetine and uh, and foam core board and stuff. Um, so yeah, it was it was it, with the way the show came together, there was just so much information racing across different platforms like Slack and Dropbox and emails and and all that stuff. So um, a lot of that time was spent just familiarizing myself with the show information. Um, a lot of the creative, um, you know, as Matt was describing, that there was the studio show, which was the XR environment. Um, which sort of was broken down into, you know, weekly um, efforts where it was almost like a, if it was the NCAA tournament, it was the group of 16, the group of eight, the semifinals, the quarterfinals, and each week was a separate approach. Um, and I think that sort of the capstones of that was kind of these, uh, these um, you know, three minute, um, you know, uh, opening ceremony videos that were super elaborate with AR integration and XR and uh, it was more theatrical. Um, and those were our opportunities to really um, sort of put some put some uh, some queuing uh, on display um, and really, really play with technology and the story um, while the actual gameplay was more of like a sports environment. So okay. uh, there was a lot in there to internalize as far as the choreography of what we were going to be lighting and the story and the colors and the environments. Um, and uh, I, I know, I mean, like like a lot of people in our industry, like the XR environment lighting tasks is, is somewhat new. It's, it's sort of a household name at this point um, because it's what you know, everyone's doing um, in the pandemic. But uh, for me, it was a huge learning opportunity to, to, to work in that type of space and to play around with what, um, what looks good, um, you know, as far as laying in lights on top of an LED volume on top of, you know, when, when camera tracking is involved, when AR is involved. Um, so yeah, the, the time in quarantine was, was when I wasn't struggling to connect to the internet, to, to get at this info, mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of just reading and rereading and, 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 um, internalizing, um, you know, the world that we would have to eventually get in and light. Cause like three or four days after, after I got out of quarantine, we were, we were live on camera. Um, so, you know, Matt, Matt kind of, uh, you know, did the initial, uh, kind of the heavy lifting on the first round. Uh, the second round, we both participated in, and then after that, he was sort of on to the other show and I kind of took over as lighting director. Wow. It sounds like you had quite the learning curve to get through in those, uh, in the two weeks of quarantine. Uh, there was no lack of uh, input coming to you. There was a lot, there was a lot. There was some interesting new apps that, you know, like it was one of those shows where like, oh, uh, you know, here's a link and it's from some app that you've never heard of and you download it and install it and then learn how to use it. Um, and uh, it was all helpful. I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, open-mindedness that I think was needed on this type of project because there was just so many new things. And even onto the final show, you know, like in my, you know, the, the cap of a lot of my experience is the arena level of doing concerts. And, and, I, and I don't have a lot of experience working in stadiums. Um, so that was another learning curve for me as well to, oh, to, to get in, the, in that, in that um, environment and, and learn how to you know, do lighting at that scale and 37 follow right. spots and that kind of stuff. <laughs> so Matt, fill me in on what it was like to get out of quarantine, out of the hotel room and get to the venue. What sort of credentials do you need in the country to just move about? So they've been uh, tracking everybody off of a QR code system. Um, so we all had to have WeChat installed on our phone uh, to the point in which 
when we were coming into the country, when we had that little layover in, in Incheon, the flight crew was going around to passengers and making sure that they had WeChat installed and making sure that everybody's battery was uh, getting charged so that when we landed in China, we had a full battery to get us through the airport on that first you know, jaunt through, through customs and everything. Um, uh, so as soon as we got out, they issued us a uh, like printed paper that was basically a sort of a stamp certified document that said we'd gone through quarantine um, and that we were clear to move about the, the city. Um, and then from there on out, uh, it was, I want to say it was midnight, the night that we all got out of quarantine, the QR code on code on our phones on the, the tracing app uh, changed from being black with a red box around it that said like unknown findings to being green that said conditions normal. And then from there, Every time you went pretty much anywhere, we were staying at the uh, the Grand Hyatt, and if you walked to the mall attached to the Grand Hyatt to go to Starbucks, you had to show your your green QR code when you walked in there. Or if you wanted to go to Din Tai Fung at the Shanghai Tower, you would show your, your QR code to go in, into the building. Once you were in the building, they didn't trace you beyond that. We didn't have to show it going into the restaurant or anything like that. Um, and then, uh, you know, production uh, did, you know, weekly COVID tests on everybody. Uh, and then uh, once we got up to the, the, the stadium show, because the stadium show had a live audience, they also started checking everybody's QR code coming in and out of the stadium because they wanted to make sure that, you know, they could trace everybody that had been in and out of the stadium at that point. So right. for my listeners that don't know, WeChat is the Chinese version of Facebook, but on steroids. WeChat uh, is your messenger it's you, the way you pay for things. It is, it's everything that Americans would fear that Facebook would become. It, 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 it has access to everything about you. Is that, uh, would you say that's accurate? Yeah. I mean, it, and it works great too. I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> if Facebook did everything that well, I don't know if I would uh, stress about Facebook that much. <laughs> So in China, like you, it's almost a cashless society now. You don't need cash nearly to the level that you do in Western culture. Your WeChat, you can pay street vendors, you can donate to charities, you can gift to children through WeChat. Like everybody has WeChat. Yeah, it's it's still a little funky as a foreign uh, bank card holder. Yeah, but uh, you know, depending on how much you wanted to dig into it you know you could get it working as a foreign bank card holder i don't you would need a chinese bank account as far as i know that, to get that's it. the best way to do it is but they've gotten it's become more forgiving to foreign bank card holders so yeah, as they open up more and more to western culture they i'm they're gonna have to eventually and we did uh we, we mostly use alipay instead of the wechat pay um, oh, what's that one uh it's the extension of alibaba's um okay venmo version of venmo Got it. Um, it was sort of critical to get around town. Um, you know, I'd say five or 10 times I people refused my cash, um, just paying for a meal at a mall or something like that. Um, and it was frustrating at the beginning, but once I kind of gave in, it was actually super fantastic. Like, I can't wait till the U.S. catches up and we go cashless and all it is is just a screen of your phone or something. Um, actually, I, I when I got back from China, I, I was so accustomed to not even carrying my wallet around for two months that I... Um, I actually drove out to Palm Springs and didn't even bring my wallet on accident. <laughs> uh, just like, I'm never one of those guys. I always have it on me. 
I'm down. I fully embrace that. I uh, Obviously, there's some privacy concerns that are still left to be hammered out. But if I could go around with just carrying my phone, I'm down. Just carry my And I could leave my keys at home. I want to leave my wallet at home. Yep. I want everything on my phone. And, uh, and I want the, what you're talking about. I want people to be concerned about my battery power. That's it. Yep. You know, hey, hey, charge up here. And so you can buy our stuff, you know, here's chargers, you know. It does make it easy just to like to spend at will uh, and not really think about it. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, I'll take another drink, scan. Like, scan, scan. I want to hit the the bell and buy a ring for every buy a drink for uh, <laughs> buy a round for the whole thing. Scan in your phone. Yeah, exactly. I'll just deal with this in a month. <laughs> uh, Matt, how were your translators? You know, great. We actually didn't have to use translators all that much. Most most of our crew was Singaporean, and all the okay. Singaporean was, uh, you know, they speak they speak at least three or four languages. Um, yeah. So, so our, uh, when we got to the, the, the finals of the stadium show, um, I had a team of American production electricians out there that were providing the front end planning and support, um, uh, chief among them, uh, our buddy, Jason Mack, who, who, uh, you know, assembled a team of, of dudes to help. Them Great choice. In. And then, uh, uh, from there, you know, all uh, creative technologies gave us about 10 Singaporeans and then. Uh, the 10 Singaporeans had another, uh, you know, 10 Chinese like hands that worked with us. Uh, but th- we managed to spread the load in out over enough days that we didn't need a terribly massive crew to get the whole thing in and up in 24 hours. It was uh, sort of in that regard, it was a little luxurious. I mean, I don't, not a lot of stadium shows in the world where you have uh, a reasonable amount of time to put them in, but, but, Thankfully, we did, which was great because we didn't have the but we couldn't get the bodies in the country to make up for needing to get it in faster if we'd wanted to. So, all right, so Zach, kind of kind of walk me through a normal day of uh, the logistics here, like on above and beyond what a, a normal programmer director day. Like what sort of logistics did you have to go around to maintain safe PPE and and just safe precautions? Well, even even though uh, Shanghai was uh, largely through their outbreak of COVID, I mean, for, to the best of our knowledge, I think there was only, you know, five or 10 cases per day, and they were all caught at the airport. So there were people right. entering, uh, entering, the, entering the country. Um, but I think the entire time we were there, there was no local cases. Um, that we were there during a national holiday, and there was some city um, north of us that had a small outbreak, but they largely had it contained. Um, so even though there wasn't any immediate risk, um, we were still required to wear masks for the entirety of the time that we were working or around the hotel. Um, so, you know, pretty quickly we became really accustomed to, to masking up, um, before we went to China, it was a conscious thing, you know, remember to wear your mask, all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, within like a week, it was absolutely second nature. Um, so every day mask wearing every day two temperature checks in the morning and the evening, you know, I, I, I kind of found some enjoyment in just my morning shuttle rides. You know, we had about a 30 to 45 minute commute every day um, and they kept the shuttles half, half full. So every, every person had their own row, basically. But just looking out the window, watching, you know, the outside, uh, the outside world, uh, Shanghai 
without tourists and everyone was just doing their own thing, not really wearing masks, just going on their own, you know, about their daily lives. Um, it really, it felt unique to be in another country in and in, in an international, um, you know, major metropolis like Shanghai and not really see tourism at all. Um, it was just only wow. Chinese people. There was no white people. Um, it was just uh, really, really kind of bizarre, but like exciting at the same time. And, and it made it, it didn't get old for me, just looking out the window, um, going to the studio in the morning. Once we were uh, on site, uh, yeah, there was, there was the, the, the you know, there was, it, it was around us at all times, you know, PPE, social distancing, the, the catering area was separated by plexiglass dividers. Um, we had staggered lunch breaks. Um, they did a really good job of, of, of uh, keeping us, you know, as safe as we can be. There was obviously moments where you're working on top of each other, but that was kind of rare. You know, me, 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 you know, me as a letting director and the programmer had enough space between us that was, you know, felt, uh, felt distant and there was always airflow. And all of that aside, eventually it started to feel just like normal work days, I'd say. Um, you know, full days, 10, 10 hours, sometimes overtime, that kind of stuff, you know, because it's esports and uh, this is sort of like the global gathering, the world's finals and the tournament that lead up to the world finals. They did a lot of scheduling of the competitions so that it would align with, you know, certain regions, prime times, or they would do it so that we would catch as many, um, you know, normal hours for all the regions, which for us meant like a later evening schedule. And we'd be going live until 11 o'clock at night, China time, which made it so that we would catch the morning in America and then the afternoon in Europe. Um, so that was a little right bit on. different, you know, from day to day, our, our, our schedule sometimes, you know, inverted where we had, to, you know, 8 a.m. calls versus 2 p.m. calls and, and that kind of stuff. Um, All right. But uh, yeah, otherwise just, you know, washing lots of hands, um, you know. Every single time I use the bathroom, there was a cleaning person in there wiping things down. It was a constant, a constant uh, cycle of, of cleaning there, which was a little weird. Wow. But yeah, I, I, the, the, my takeaway from all that was, especially when I was coming home, getting back into the States, was um, how important it was to just find normalcy in all of that weirdness. Um, uh-huh. I think because we, we're, not, we're not working in it that much, it, it still feels bizarre. But just getting into the routine of going to work every day, this is just normal work day. Um, felt really, really comforting um, in like an existential way because I look forward to that so much. Yeah, yeah, it's it's bizarre. It's it's never it's never not weird to see all your friends covering their face and meeting people yeah. and not knowing what they really look like. And, but you know, just finding normalcy in that just it just felt really good. You know? All right. So we, we're running out of time, but uh, Matt, I really need to hear about how the day of show went. Like, tell me about the audience coming into the arena, the audience being seated, you guys getting to call House Lights Go, or was that a thing? Did you guys get the, like, how how was the day of the big show? You know, it was, it, I hate to say it, but it was surprisingly, like, normal. It was kind of exactly what we always think it's going to be. It was, um, that uh, sounds awesome. You know, it, it was, it was a, you know, everybody showed up at, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, we immediately went into some like camera blocking rehearsals and some screen timing stuff and just all of the madness that is the, you know, the couple hours before any big broadcast. And, uh, you know, while that was happening, they started loading in the audience. Um, they, they had, you know, I didn't follow the logistics of this a whole lot, but because the soccer stadium was so new, the subway station near the soccer stadium wasn't open yet. So they had a bus uh, sort of music festival style like bus system set up for attendees 
so that they could take a train to the nearest subway station and then catch a bus over to the soccer stadium. Um, so the audience like loaded in a little bit more of a trickle than they might have, and they opened doors a little earlier than they might have liked to. Okay. Uh, but then, you know, once we got into the show, um, you know, we, we, we arranged with the venue. We, we were the house lights for the venue. So we never even had to call the venue to get, ask for house lights out. Uh, they had, uh, we had like a timing schedule worked out for them to turn off the concourse lights and like the lights in the VIP suites for the, the opening ceremony, which is the, you know, the fun theatrical part of, of, of the, of the show day. And then, um, you know, beyond that, it was, you know, it was a, not quite sold out stadium but it was it was they did a like a checkerboard things to keep people you know a little bit apart from one another but it was a roaring crowd and it was a lot of people excited to be at a venue and and you know listen to music and watch their favorite teams uh you know play play video games for the entire world to see so it was it was great <laughs> from the photos that i saw the the crew was wearing masks but the audience was not is that yeah there's uh... There's no mask mandates in Shanghai. So even uh, depending on, you know, where you going out to dinner at night or, uh, you know, going, you know, wherever we were going in, in, in our personal time, you know, for the most part, we all kept up mask wearing because we're kind of used to it and it sort of felt safe and sane to us. But right. as a country, I, you know, I'd say half the people in the country at any given outing were wearing masks and half the people weren't. And, but they don't, you know, there's, there's not um that was one of the hardest things to get used to is that because the you know china has has done so well in in conquering this this plague that, that you know they've uh everybody there is kind of living their best lives and and that was you know took a lot of getting used to i mean the first time we went out to a meal and got in a taxi cab you know the taxi cab say please wear a mask but like you know sometimes the driver would be wearing a mask sometimes the driver wouldn't be wearing a mask and okay. if, if people were super uncomfortable with it they didn't go out and if people were okay with it they went out and it was uh it was it was it was the hardest thing about going there was coming home and having to come back into everything that we've been living for the last six months what you're describing sounds like a a, a geolocation or a widespread area that has some sort of a national plan that's what it, it sounds like you're describing to me is somebody where they're taking precautions to make sure that people can remain safe using widespread coordination and, and expert related expert uh, scientific knowledge. Yep. Yep. Uh, and That's you know, we, we would chat with our, our, you know, the locals there and they would be like, oh, what's it like in America? And they've, you know, they've seen our news and they hear stories from, you know, <laughs> what's going on at the States, but none of them quite believed it until we were telling them our stories. And then when, uh, uh, you know, they were telling us their quarantine stories, they were like, yeah, you know, like Shanghai, what, giant, you know, metropolis, international city, government comes through and says, hey, everybody has to lock up, your, lock yourselves in your apartments for, we don't know how long. And then, you know, they got, uh, you know, issued every, I think it was every apartment got issued a card that allowed one person to go out for one hour a day to go shopping for groceries or sorry, one hour a week to go shopping for groceries. And, you know, they, what everything that they went through when they were in the thick of their uh, quarantine stay at home orders, whatever you, you want to call it, it, it made everything that we went through that we thought was really hard in the States look like it was child's play. Right. I mean, they right. were like, Oh my gosh. Like they, they really, really, really did it. And they really committed to it. And, and the government 
helped the people do it successfully and insisted that the people do it successfully. And, you know, because of that, like they almost couldn't get used to the fact that we were wearing face masks. They were like, what are like, guys, you know, we don't have to wear face masks. We're in China. And we're like, yeah, we're just going to keep wearing face masks. That's, that's not hurting anybody. And they're like, no, no, no. Just we're used to it. Right. If you're in China and you have a cold, you put a face mask on. Doesn't matter if it's 2020 or 2010 or 2030, right? It's just the way it is, and, and yeah, was, uh, you know they 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 thought we were all crazy, and then you know getting home and you know going back through SFO and realizing that, or even just being at the airport leaving Shanghai and realizing that international travel is still not a thing, and there were only eight or ten flights out of out of Punong Airport that day, and it was it was this weird jolt back into reality. It was like okay, wow, man, like we forgot that we forgot that we had to deal with insanity again. So here we are. <laughs> and it made it, it made it a little bit weird for the, for the re-entry as well. Cause when we left, you know, le- leaving in late, Oct- late August, early September, knowing we're going to be doing a two week quarantine in Shanghai. Um, you know, we also had the two month delayed plan of coming back into the States and doing another quarantine or whatever we need to do t- to be safe back in America. Um, and as we were doing the math in our heads and reading the news and reading the COVID counts, um, we realized that the biggest vulnerability was us being infected by someone in America coming back into the country than it would have been us coming back from a travel, uh, which is a little bit like the realization of that was like, was weird. Uh, Cause we were just all anticipating like quarantining ourselves for two weeks, but then it was like, well, that would just add a whole lot more risk than us just like being by ourselves in our home versus going to stay at another hotel in the States for two weeks before we go back home or something. It was just a, it's weird to think about. I, I, don't I know kind of have to take a second to pause and like talk about how weird it must have felt to go from being in Shanghai where there's five cases to going to the United States or even LA with a, a similar population density, but thousands of cases. Yeah. Ridiculous. You you went from a safe location in Shanghai to an unsafe location in California. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, to wow. be, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that we got back in when we did. You know, it was like the case counts have doubled since we've been home. I think. Yeah, the, yeah. the U.S. is in the in, a, in the middle of a third wave right now, and the third wave is higher than the first and second. Yeah. I, Zach, I don't know about you, but I feel like one of the trippiest moments of the entire trip for me was when we were all standing in San Francisco collecting our baggage before, like at, right off, right as we got off our flight from China. And we all kind of like sat there and we all hugged each other goodbye. And we all kind of sat there and said, holy crap, this is the last time we can sort of like safely hug strangers and, you know, people that are outside of our like family groups for the foreseeable future, which, which, which was a little trippy, right? I mean, uh, uh, our friend Shiva was, was handing us all uh, like alcohol wipes so we could wipe down the luggage carts. And we were like, holy crap, you're like, you're totally right. We need to be doing that again. Like we're back into the thick of it. And, and, yeah. you know, so we, we all like hugged each other and then we all walked over to the Southwest terminal and got on a plane and flew the rest of the way home and like didn't touch each other again. It was just, it was, that was the end of, 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 of you know, the bubble. I mean, the, the bubble that was not, not our production, but just the bubble that was China. Like it were, we were gone where, you know, we were out of it. So even, even I remember uh, getting out of my quarantine and, and going straight to our, that like release dinner and seeing you. And I expected to just give you a wave or something, but you gave me a bear hug. I had to stand back. I was like kind of shocked. And I, and I did the same thing once I was out for a week 
And then Jeff got out and I saw Jeff in the lobby and I gave him a big bear hug and everyone coming from the States, just like, you know, does a double take, like, don't come near me kind of thing. But, you know, there was no COVID, you know, we, we had done two weeks of quarantine. We're tested, you know, once or twice a week, temperature checks every day, twice, you know, we can hug all we want kind of thing. Oh, come post COVID era. There's going to be bear hugs abound. (laughs) You know, I mean, hug everybody, just hug everything you see everywhere you go. You know, that's, that's our natural state of being is touching and interacting and yelling and sneezing and, you know, that's, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't sneeze on people, but do hug your friends, you know, yeah. share lollipops, uh, you know, <laughs> out, do all that, all that stuff. I mean, that part didn't get old for two, two months in China. Like when we were at the seventh and eighth weeks, uh, we were all looking at each other when we were out in public at a restaurant saying like, oh, this is still so great. It didn't, it didn't get old on us. Um, yeah. The privilege that we were, we had to be able to go out and just enjoy well, and the little things, right? Like, oh, you could steal a French fry from your buddy's plate. And like, it wasn't like earth shattering. It was just like, oh yeah, I remember doing that. Or, yeah, oh, how's that glass of wine? That glass of wine's pretty good. Oh, can I try a sip? And like, nobody, you know, nobody stressed out about it. Or it was, that was, you know, oh. little things in life that you you forget about, or you know, you, we all take for granted. So I would, uh, I, I would totally share an ice cream with a friend, you know? <laughs> I just want I just want the freedom to share an ice cream with a friend. Uh, That's you know. <laughs> yeah. Looking I, I look forward like, to that. That's how much you want it. You'll even share that ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time to share your experience with us. It's weird to hear my my own or to even experience my own yearning for the sense of normalcy that you guys are talking about. And you guys had to go to great lengths to do a normal show. I I, I hope that makes sense. But I mean, it's, it's extraordinary that you guys were able to do the sort of event that would take, I mean, on any given weekend, there would be 10 events exactly like that in LA or San Francisco or Las Vegas. And now you guys had to travel halfway around the globe to do what sounds like a a normal show. I mean, it's spectacular. The, some of the photos I saw and some of the technology you guys were used are extraordinary, but at the same time, like that's just amazing to hear that you guys pulled off a, a perfectly adequate show. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. It, it was a real privilege to be able to get to do this. I mean, now amongst any time. And I was, I was really thankful that I was able to bring Zach and, you know, Shaheem and Jason Mack and Tiffany and Mike and, I, you know, just everybody that came out on my team, I was, I was super thankful that I got to, you know, bring them and much less offer them the opportunity to come out and, you know, have a, a chance to do a gig in, in the middle of this insanity. I mean, everybody, everybody was, everybody was so happy to be there. I'd never worked with a happier group of, of, of everybody. I mean, hot, you know, long days, cold days, hot days, wet days. I mean, everybody always had a smile on their face and everybody was, was, you know, just was stoked to stoked to do it. So cool. Everybody that you chose was very competent and perfectly huggable. (laughs) Right on. Thank you guys so much for sharing your story with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Great to talk to you. 